Good afternoon, Asphalt Capital. Tara speaking. Hi, Tara. It's Matt Schechner calling in uh, for to do a podcast with Sir Martin. Hi, Matt. Hi. Um, just bear with me for one moment. He's just finishing up um, another meeting. Yeah. Uh, let me just give him um, a nudge and um, I'll be back with you in a moment. He's just finishing up a meeting, so she has me on hold. Background music, at least? That's the standard, uh, you know. Okay. Standard terrible. What's your ideal background music for old? My friend of mine has some Springsteen that's pretty good. Something that's not torture. Just not torture. I'm putting you through to Sir Martin now. Hello. Just over seven months ago, Sky News broke the news that Sir Martin Sorrell had left the world's biggest advertising and marketing services agency after 32 years at the helm. Headlines over the reasons for that departure, reports of misconduct and a row over his remuneration followed. But just weeks later, he started all over again, founding rival group S4 Capital. Veteran of the advertising industry and founder of WPP, Sir Martin Sorrell. How were the last six months? A surprising, a surprising exit from WPP. Well, six months have been uh, interesting. I think we've we've had our ups and our downs, and our, our ups. Because somebody who operates in the conference space, who bought his wife bought him a courtesy title, American woman. She bought it for about a hundred pounds. And it, it, what's it was the guy who runs Adweek? Okay, yeah, well, Lord well, Lord Schenker, isn't it? Lord Schenker, right. Yeah, that's right. Hello. Good evening. Hi, Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm very well, my lord. How are you? Uh, are you a real lord? Well, uh, you know, I, let's put it this way, Sir Martin. I have a very official-looking certificate on my wall that says it. And uh, so let's, let's have a little fun here, if we can. And, and I'd love to go back, Sir Martin, to your, the early days. And one of the things that we ask on, on Great Minds is, you know, going all the way back to haberdashers to, I know your first job, I think, was Glenn Dinning and James Gulliver. I want to spend a little more time. I know you work for Mark McCormick as well. But, but looking back early on, who were the Great Minds that influenced you? Well, so you'd have to go back further than that. So my dad was the first, uh, probably the first and the last and the most significant. So he was a, a retailer, a seven-day-a-week retailer. He ran 750 radio and electrical stores in the UK. At the time, they were the biggest chain of stores. They weren't his stores. They were a, a, they were a division of an industrial holding company called Firth Cleveland, and he ran that for many, many years until he retired. So that was the first great mine. Uh, he used to buy uh, a lot of uh, equipment, a lot of radios and TVs and refrigerators and lighting and there were two people who really he was impressed by and over the years he introduced me to. Uh, the first was um, Sir Jules Thorne, who was smaller than me. It was like a little peanut from uh, Austria. I think he mm -hmm. fled. Uh, it was a Jewish emigre from Vienna, very cultured man, fled to the UK just before the Second World War and started a lighting factory 
in Enfield, which then became Thorn Electrical Industries, linked up with General Telephone in the United States, uh, and, was, and was a big radio and TV and refrigerator and lighting mm -hmm. manufacturer, uh, and in fact had a very important architectural building in St. Martin's Lane near the Ivy restaurant, which many advertising people will know, will know now is called Thorn House. Uh, unfortunately, the business was sold eventually to Smith's Industries. It was run by, in fact, interestingly, Jules Thorne had A shares, controlling shares, gave them up, uh, and then were eventually were sort of, I guess, pushed out, you could say, and, and, and the company, I think, is no more. I don't know, it's been dismembered. But he was a big influence uh, on my father and uh, as a result on me and I used to go and see him when I was about 14 or 15 years old and he would spare me any time. He was a lovely man. I used to go to the top of Thorn House in St. Martin's Lane and he would give me any time. That was one person. The other one was Lord Arnold Weinstock, a real lord this time, Matt. Not a, not, not, not somebody who bought, who bought, you know, this was a, he was a peer of the realm, and he ran a, a company called originally called Radio and Allied, which became GEC, the the British General Electric Corporation. And he was an outstanding industrialist of his time, perhaps by his own admission, a little bit too conservative. He he probably hoarded hoarded much cash uh, inside the company. I remember him saying to me before he died that uh, he regretted not um, being more expansive. Uh, did a lot of joint ventures, which I think uh, I remember him regretted. He had a wonderful son called Simon Weinstock, who sadly died at a very young age, which I think, mm. you know, saddened him enormously. But uh, he was a great man. And I went. I remember going to have dinner with him, uh, lunch with him and his board on the day that we launched the offer, what was known as then as the fax attack for, for Ogilvy in 1989. So those were two big influence influences on me in addition to my father and then you now you mentioned that was when i was at haberdashers and later uh obviously when i i think at, at hbs at harvard business school i think uh, walt salmon who was a marketing professor the red baron as we used to call him and wickham skinner who ran an elective program uh, or course in the second year called Manufacturing Policy, which really was not about manufacturing, but business policy. We looked at the oil industry, the furniture industry, and electronics, <clears throat> a different industry in each semester. But it was a great course. You didn't say anything. You didn't open your mouth in that, unless, in that course unless you knew precisely what you were going to say. Everybody lived in fear of being called on if they weren't prepared. It was a a really uh, a petri dish, I guess, is the right way of putting it. It was amazing, amazing course. And then beyond that, uh, I would say Joel Smilo at Glen Denning, uh, who made uh, a fortune later on um, as uh, ex HBS, ex uh, Procter and Gamble, worked at uh, Ralph Glen Denning's Glen Denning Associates, which when I was at WPP, we bought the uh, the non-US part of. Uh, so Joel made money on uh, uh, on uh, Playtex, refrying the beans at Playtex, as we used to call it, re refinancing it. And then, uh, obviously, James Mark McCormack at, at IMG, and when I had to f flee the United States because of the draft, my mother wouldn't let me be drafted, went back to the UK and 
joined Mark McCormack, who was the subject of one of the cases at uh, Harvard Business School. That's how I met him. And then James Gulliver, <coughs> who built Fine Fair, and then Argyle Foods, uh, along with uh, Alistair Grant and David Webster. And then I would say, obviously, the Saatchi brothers, um, who, I, who I met through James Gulliver. He had had an investment in Garland Compton, and Garland, Ken Gill, who ran Garland Compton, the chairman, was worried about the creative image of Garland Compton, and uh, Saatchi injected reverse takeover by the Saatchi brothers of Garland Compton. So I would say those were the the influences in my in my formative years. It's quite a group. I want to come back to Mark McCormick because I had a, a lot of history with IMG earlier in my career, but I want to go back to something. You mentioned about uh, Lord Weinstock being conservative and doing some joint ventures and reading between the lines, it sounds like even as a teenager, you observe then, hey, maybe you want to own something, not just be a partner with someone. Is that is there something to that thread? No, I don't think so. I think uh, Lord Weinstock was very conservative. He hoarded a wonderful man. I mean, I remember it, it might, there was a an article in Management Today which said that he ran his businesses with five ratios, and I, I cut out the five ratios and stuck them on my blotter in Charlotte Street. Maybe they're still on my blotter in Charlotte right. Street. Um, right. no, I, and he was, he was well known for, like on a, a late Friday afternoon, calling, you know, not, not, not obeying the lines of command, cutting through and calling a plant manager late on a Friday afternoon and asking what was really going on. You know, he was anxious, not because he deliberately wanted to circumvent the chains of command, but because he wanted to find, you know, one of the biggest problems when, when you're a man like him is that people don't tell you the truth. Uh, they mm-hmm. gloss, they gloss over the, you know, good news travels fast and bad news travels very slowly. And he wanted to know what was going on. Not, not because he wanted to be invasive or, or difficult or prickly or whatever, but because he really wanted to understand, he knew that people would, would, would gloss over the, the difficulties and only talk about the good things. So, man for detail, you know, I've been accused of being a micromanager, which I think is a compliment, not a, an insult, but you, you, mm-hmm. you don't micromanage. What you want to know is the detail because you want to know what the hell's going on. So I, I, I think, you know, I think it wasn't what, what Weinstock said was that he had hoarded a cash inside the company uh, and he, he had done joint ventures probably because he was uncertain of or partnerships because he was uncertain of his ability or his company's ability to deliver on their own. And, you know, I think it, to your, the point to your question is that one thing it did teach me or anybody listening, if there is anybody, as I said, uh, is that, <laughs> you know, you, you basically have to have control. I mean, when I think back to the joint companies that we had at WPP, for example, with Dentsu, uh, in the Far East, uh, either right. or, or the, the the joint the investment that we had in ADK at WPP, and then the joint companies that we established that, that we took over with uh, when we when we acquired or merged with YNR in the year 2000, they never worked. There was always a a struggle for control. It wasn't, you know, ADK saying to us, look, we'll look after Japan, you look after 
everything outside Japan, which I think logically would have been the way to go. It was everybody was, and, and I think we were probably just as much guilty of this than as they were. It was a, a subtle or maybe not so subtle wrestling for control. And partnerships of that nature, I think that rarely work. Somebody has to be in control and moving the enterprise forward. The same thing was true of Dentsu. You know, it was a, yeah. a continuous, continuous battle. You know, logically, again, you would say, look, you look after Japan, we look after outside Japan, but it never really worked that way. And um, even when we had minority positions in, in one another, there was a, a struggle. And that happens across the board. I mean, I can remember uh, with, with Kansar World Panel, GFK, I think to this day, has certain countries that they operate in. And we tried for years before, you know, before obviously Cantor now has been sold to Bain, maybe they'll be able to pull it off. But uh, it was a natural for the world panel to be united uh, under one uh, one uh, controller. And right. uh, I think Cantor was 60%, uh, GFK was 40%. Uh, but GFK would always say, well, if we merged the two, and it would be easy to do that from a financial point of view, uh, they would want control. And it just can't work. So somebody somebody has to run the thing. And I think that's, coming back to Weinstock's experience, that's what he thought, which is, mm-hmm. you know, if, you, if you do these partnerships, you make them equal or you're a minority, and your inclination is to try and run them, it, 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 it runs into a brick wall at some point in time. Early in my career, my legitimate career, uh, I was the first director of the Sports Commission for New York City going back to 1987. Right. And as, as a very young man and used to do a lot of work with but with Mark. You remember Bud Stanner, who was Jackie yes, Stewart's no, I remember, agent. I remember Bud Stanner very used to work for yeah. Jay, Mike, Jay Michael. Yeah. Exactly right. And ran, uh, ultimately ran IMG Motorsports. And I had a fantastic learning experience working with him and Ellen Merlo at Philip Morris and the Roger Penske organization yeah, in, a, yeah. in an ultimately failed attempt to bring the Marlboro Grand Prix, which used to be in the Meadowlands, to New York City. Yeah. And I, I was actually successful. We were paid a $100,000 success fee, which for us was a ton of money. The Sports Commission was a not-for-profit. And if you look in the New York Times, March 4th, I think it was 1991, look both ways, it's coming. And we actually got the race approved. I remember going to IMG and I, and I got to meet Mark and a lot of the other senior people there. And he had something that is so in such short supply today. You have it, but very few do. And that's that old notion of charismatic leadership. Why, why is that in such, such short supply? I don't know. Listen, well, you, you, I, do I, have, I think, you do have I, it. I think, you do have I it. I think you're, no, you're, you're, you're flattering, flattering, you're deceiving me by flattery. Um, no, I, look, I, I think we look back with rose-tinted spectacles. I think people in our industry look back, you know, I was at a dinner where somebody got up recently and said, I remember the times, I'm old enough, he said, to remember the times when the ads were as good as the programs that they interrupted. And I think that's complete nonsense. I think that is, you know, looking back to the days of Don Draper, uh, and, and, and bemoaning the fact, you know, data 
just there's a the derivative of that which is that data destroys creativity nonsense it improves creativity it gives you insights that give you a better the big idea is important but it's important in a different context i think the same applies to what you just said i think there are big personalities you know if i think who is the person that i think uh has been the best manager of creative talent i think bob iger at disney you know he's now stepping up to be chairman um because i think in yes. in, in part because he wants to focus on the creative talent but i think you know there are people like that in the industry you know brian roberts you know, at comcast has done a brilliant job in running mm-hmm. that company and developing it you know reed hastings at netflix i mean that there are people that uh, that are charismatic and there are people who have been terribly successful i think we just naturally look back to our days and think that these people that those people in the old days were more interesting than once today and i don't think that's true i don't think that's true i think you know you know if you're yeah. you're looking i mean i think there is a problem the average ceo lasts about 5 years the average company according to mckinsey and the footsie 100 or s&p 500 lasts 17 years um you know i think there is more volatility um and as a result there being more volatility you know running a, what i call an uncontrolled listed company that's a company over which you don't have you know a controlling share like you do at facebook or you do at google or you do at amazon or whatever it is you know does bezos lack charisma does best does he lack does yeah. elon musk lack uh interest and charisma surely not i mean that can't be you know mark zuckerberg it might be of a different kind you know larry and sergey i mean it's it's just there are there are heroes and hero, heroines but they are of a different different sort and i think this is the problem that we look at the lens that you're looking through when you make that comment is a 1980s or 90s lens the lens today is different there are different attitudes just as people bemoan the lack of creativity in their their minds from yesteryear actually the definition of creativity is totally different so there are media people who are creative there are data analysts who are creative there are even finance directors who are creative sometimes too creative but it's just a different it you know if you look at you said the 1980s in those days globalization was the key technological transformation yeah. was not something that people were focused on so when i was at searches or the early days at wpp it was all about globalization ted levit harvard business review i think october of 1983 that was the thesis on which morris sarchi developed uh sarchi and sarchi i remember him rushing round with a copy of the the article in the HBR and the Harvard Business Review and shouting you know eureka uh, i found the 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 philosophical ethos of sarchi and sarchi around globalization now ted levit overreg the pudding as he admitted himself 20 years later at a review we did of his article in 2003 at harvard business school with john quelch who was on our board at wpp at the time he said i overreg the pudding you know people weren't going to consume everything in the same way everywhere but that's the way it was trending and you know i just think you know we look back on those years uh, globalization was the the driver 
And then in the latter years at WPP technology, the technological bucket started to become more and more important with the, with the internet. And now S4 is totally focused on the internet. We're not interested in anything traditional or anything historic. We're just focused on what currently and in the future we think will drive top line growth. And so, yeah, I, I suppose I suppose we do tend to romanticize the past, but your points in terms of the caliber of leaders of these great companies we have today, certainly on. L l let me go back to something you mentioned also a few minutes ago, which was um, a lot of executives not wanting to hear bad news. And I, and I think in particular from the current generation of leaders, this, there's a whole culture underneath them of, you know, executive coddling. How did you deal past and present with bad news? Well, I think... Were your people willing, willing to come to well, you and I mean, give I you bad news? I can remember there was an article saying that I didn't like bad news, and that, that was complete nonsense. What I, what I liked was people to give me the bad news, um, and so we could do so. You know, if good news travels fast and bad news travels slowly, that's bad, in and of itself, because you want to try and wrestle. You know, if something's going wrong, you try and wrestle with it as quickly as you possibly can. Delay, my dad used to say, delay is a negative. And, you know, if I delay on something, it's, it's usually because I don't know what the answer is, or I'm uncertain about it, or I'm worried about it, or whatever. And it always, it, you know, people don't like to take action, difficult actions. And they tend to mm -hmm. sort of delay them. So the answer to you, uh, and organizations work in ways that, I mean, always remember, uh, if, if you get an account win in an agency, somebody will send an email around or a message around saying, wonderful news, we won this and that account. They never, in my experience, in, in the 33 years I was at WPP, I can't remember many, if any, instances of anybody sending me a note saying, we've got, they would send me a note saying, wonderful news, we won this. Uh, but they would never put mm -hmm. the revenues attached to it or the gross profit attached to it. And I will always have to write back and say, look, I, that's great, uh, wonderful. By the way, what, what is the impact of this? Because it could be $1, it could be $100,000, it could be $10 million. But you could never tell it was... Every win was greeted with the same amount of celebration, um, whatever what it was, you know, and it right. might be, or it might be retention. Uh, we've, we've done wonderfully. We've retained it. Great. You know, what have we retained? What was it before and what is it now? So it, there's just a, a, a tendency in our industry to put a gloss on things. And the reason is, you know, campaign writes its headline. Ad Age writes its headline, Ad Week runs, it, runs its headline, and people are more interested in the headline rather than the real result. And that leads to a lot of uh, problems. For example, the media agencies that win business, the people who run them are more interested in the headline and appearing at the top of the new business table than the real result. Why is it that the companies that have the worst organic growth records end up being at the top of the new business tables. Why is it? It's because they discount. 
or you know they 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 lost a leader on it. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It becomes a game. You know, when those people in Spain, I always remember this at Aegis, who extended a client two years credit, two years billing credit, and the company went mm. belly up. You know, I doubt whether the people in Tokyo at Dentsu headquarters knew that that had been done. And it, it always struck me as quite bizarre. They, you know, they wanted to keep the business, gave them two years credit, and the people who did it probably had long departed the organization. So, so I think, wow. you know, the, the reason to know the detail, going back to Arnold Weinstock and his Friday afternoon call to the plant manager, was, you know, just to strip away some of the gloss um, and rosy, ro- rose-tinted spectacles around these things. Because I, as I said, and said for the third time, bad news travels slowly, good news travels fast. So I want to get to S4. That was, that was terrific. Uh, which I guess goes back to roughly the spring of 18. But I was going back and doing some reading. And you can look where in you know, 15, 16, 17, you were very vocal on this very point that, that the impact of digital disruption and the need to evolve models and look not just at getting business, but at profit in the new environment was a real problem. And... Uh, how much did that shape your vision for S4? Well, I, listen, I, uh, I, I didn't like the circumstances in which, um, you know, I left WPP. I chose to resign at the end of the day. Um, and I didn't like the way that the, the board had handled the, 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 the circumstances around my resignation. Um, but you know, when I when I reflect back on it and what you just said, I have to say that you know I we didn't move fast enough. You know, if it, it, it you know it, right. WPP is an uncontrolled company, meaning probably is an uncontrolled company, but it's an uncontrolled company, which in the sense of ownership, I own and still own um, 2.1%, I think it is, of the company, and. Uh, you know, I always treated it as though it was sort of my own because of its uh, history and, and origins and always will be. It always will be my baby in that sense. Um, but, but, you know, when mm-hmm. you run an uncontrolled company, i.e. a company where you are naturally focused on the short term because institutions look at the, the investors look at the short term The way the incentives are set up, both tangible and intangible, are short-term. Although at WPP we had five-year plans, we started our five-year plans actually in 1992. So we were in the forerunner of these five-year plans. Our five-year incentive plans are very similar to the ones that everybody looks at nowadays, which is sort of ironic. And they meant that people had to put money where their mouth is. We actually insisted in the early plans, people putting cash in. You went to your bank, you borrowed, you mortgaged your house, you mortgaged your family. That gave people a focus and incentive around it. But having said that, it was uncontrolled. So if you made a mistake in the short term, you got axed. The average life of a CEO was five mm-hmm. years. And I think, you know, Ariana Huffington has a wonderful quote 
which CNBC keeps on repeating, which I think is the right thing, which is failure is not the opposite of success, it's the platform to success. Only by failing can you do things and I, you know, can you achieve things. And I think digital transformation, when you're running an analog company, which the holding companies basically are, means that you have to make major structural change in the public environment, if they're listed, which all of them are, you exclude Havas, which has disappeared into Vivendi. The other five, are, you know, open season. And the people who lead them are scared stiff of making major mistakes. So they either don't change or they change at the wrong pace, probably too slowly. Publicis, on, I think, has gone in the right direction, but it's gone too fast. And they destroyed more value than they've created. And then they go out, they right. go out and yeah, awesome. dunk, dunk four billion plus into a third-party data operation, which, with Google's decision to stop third-party cookies, has fallen in value quite, I think, precipitously. So I, I, I just think it's very difficult, easy to criticise for me and others, but it's very difficult. When I was at WPP, if I sort of look back, I probably should have been more violent. Uh, you know, Hubert Jolie, I, I quote this occasionally, uh, took over Best Buy. And he has a wonderful presentation I've heard where he mm -hmm. said, you know, he went to Best Buy, which probably is in a category, retail, which is the most difficult category to deal with. And, you know, in terms of digital disruption against Amazon and everybody else. And he said, when he was there for the first six months, everybody told him it was about change management. And he looked at it for six months, and after six months, he came, he came to the conclusion they were right. It is about change management, so he changed the management. And I think, you know, that signifies to me that what you have to do is to be quite violent um, in terms of the change, and you can't do that in that uncontrolled environment. You can do it in a controlled environment where you have voting rights that you control, or you can do it privately. And by the way, I don't think private equity right. is the solution. Private equity's time frame is about five years. So it's almost the same as the average CEO. And the average CMO might be two years. So look at the volatility. Look at the volatility. Yeah. And, and so it's like being sort of president or prime minister. You know, you have your four-year term or your five-year term. You're worried about being re-elected. Right. So you tailor everything to the re-election rather than what is the right... You know, Schroeder in Germany did the right thing, but he got kicked out. And, you know, his successors right. reaped the right. benefits of his policies. He, he reaped the whirlwind and he lost. So I think, you know, I think it's a real, real problem. Um, and structure, I think, is important. So the answer on, on, on me, WPP, is, and you look at WPP's value today, I mean, it's shattering that uh, Group M must be worth more now than the market value of WPP and throw in their debt, must be worth more than the market value and debt. And, and yet WPP's value continues to disintegrate. And, you know, it's, it was 16 billion pounds when I left and I think it's now six. But, but you, you saw what was coming and, and that clearly has shaped what you're doing in terms of control, in terms of nimbleness, in terms of living. 
yes. you know, where the world is now versus sort of straddling the old and the new with S4. Yeah, so I mean, we have, you know, we, the advantage of a clean sheet of paper, the disadvantage of lack of scale, obviously, but in a digital environment, it's about brain, not brawn. That's one thing. So we have four fundamental principles. We're purely digital because that's where the growth is, as you well know. Digital is growing at twenty percent. Traditional is declining. I mean, and and the vice, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the coronavirus and the situation that we're facing, which is which is a terrible situation, is only going to speed the growth of digital and the pressure on traditional. So one is focus on where the growth is, uh, and that's twenty percent per annum in terms of top line. And you'll see to, on Wednesday. What we did in 2019, you know, we were, you know, to the end of uh, November, we were growing at about twice, about 40, 45 percent, uh, the top line uh, at the company. That's one thing. The second thing is we have this holy trinity model, if we can put it that way. Of, uh, I can say that to a minister. The first party, first, first party data driving the development of digital advertising content, which in ter- turn drives the development of data and analytics and programmatic. We get the data back in terms of performance. We reconfigure the creative if necessary. It's like a continuous iterative loop rather like an election campaign without an election date. So that's the second point. The third point is our mantra is around faster, better, cheaper. That's speed, quality, value. Faster is about being agile. That's the big issue that most, if not all, CEOs, CMOs, CFOs, CIOs, CTOs, C- chief sales officers have in disrupted or analog companies. Better means understanding the digital ecosystem. We list 16 companies, the fearsome five, plus Apple, plus Microsoft, plus uh, Adobe, plus Oracle, plus Salesforce, plus IBM, SAP, ByteDance, Baidu, Twitter, Snap, maybe you add in Samsung and others. These companies, TikTok obviously is within ByteDance. These companies, you know, we have to opine for our clients on what is the optimal use of platform software and hardware. So that's better and cheaper means not ZBB anymore, not zero-based budgeting, but efficiency in a low-growth world where there's very little inflation, no pricing power or limited pricing power. There's an emphasis on cost. And then the last principle is unitary structure, trying to get everybody in our organization to work in one seamless way, uh, which is, you know, everybody talks about, but is very difficult to do. It should, in theory, be easier for us to do, but, um, you know, because of our scale or a smaller scale, but it's still difficult even on a smaller scale basis. And at the moment, you know, we have, uh, our data piece, but uh, we've we've got our content pillar, if you like, around media monks. We've got our data and analytics and media piece around Mighty Hive, and we're now starting to bring together the content, data, and programmatic piece into a more integrated whole. So those four principles. Coming back to your observation about what may or may not have happened at WPP, I think drive my thinking. Well, yeah, my observation was actually that you were, I thought, relatively early to the party in recognizing that things had to change. To to your point, a big machine like that just was not geared for that change. No, I think, I think, no, look, at the end of the day, it's about leadership. and, And if that was the case, and if, you know, in the sense that I did see it, or, you know, we certainly saw globalization early, we certainly saw 
the growth of the internet. You can go back and look at stuff in 96, 97 that we were saying then, if we were so smart or I was so smart, why didn't we move faster? And, you know, and I think that's the point. And then you have to look at the reasons why maybe we became complacent. Maybe I became complacent. Maybe I thought we could get there in a more controlled way. I was worried about what I call the publicist trap, yeah. which is if you stick publicists, publicists over BBH and Saatchi and Burnett, you get publicists, but you lose the other three. If you stick Sapient on top of LBI, Rosetta, Razorfish, and Digitas, what do you get? You get Sapient, and the other four brands disappear. If you put Wonderman together with JWT, JWT disappears. If yeah. you put VML together with YNR, YNR disappears. So, yeah. and these these brands, and we should know this better than anybody else, have value. So, if you slam them together that way indiscriminately, you're going to have problems. Yeah. Uh, so, so easy to to say from the sidelines, very difficult to take responsibility for it. So, going back, you know, I, if there was one wish that I could have, it would be that we had moved faster. So instead of, you know, we used to monitor what our digital revenues were, and we went up each year by about 1% every time we did the results. <clears throat> we were looking for digital, if you could define it, and we tried to, as the proportion of the total, and when I left, I think it was about 40%. And we had great digital businesses. We had, you know, I think some of the Cantar businesses around World Panel or Media, AKQA, VML, uh, Essence, mm-hmm. Axis. I mean, great businesses, but as a proportion of the whole of the 20 billion, they were relatively small. And you know, what we've done is really take those three areas and start them at S4. So it's, so it's funny how you talk about brands that appear and disappear. You came up and did the acquisition of wire and plastic products in, I think it was 1985. Right. In in 87, I think I've got the year right, the Saatchi building on Hudson Street opened. And one of your employees, a name that will ring a bell, was Gary Sussanjara. Yes. And Gary was president, I think then in some art, and it was Saatchi and Saatchi DFS Compton. <laughs> and he was the chairman, my chairman, of the Sports Commission. And... Yeah. He, he was a wonderful guy, and I was in some terrible little office uh, near City Hall, like basically half a conference room with a typewriter, and I would have to wait for the secretary to go out for lunch because she had the good IBM typewriter that had the correcto key. If you made a mistake, mine didn't. And Gary said, why don't you move in with me? And he gave me an office on the executive floor. It was he. I think Ed Wax was there. Oh, yeah. And and. Those brands, I mean, Dancer Fitzgerald Sample, you know, was a legendary brand in its day. Um, But to your point, old brands disappear and new ones like S4 and the S4 family emerge. Well, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, the the question is whether they should have disappeared. And I think, you know, in that case, with with Sarches, the problem was you had Sarches on the top company and you had Sarches as one of the major agents. So I always remember Jack Rubens was running Dorlands in the UK and Jack won the Woolworths account and it put Dorlands at the top of the 
campaign rankings in the UK. And I was elated because we had number one and number two. You know, number one was Dorland Stow and number two was Saatchi and Saatchi Garland Compton. And the brothers were not, the Saatchi brothers were not exactly happy. Was you know, they should have been happy that Dorland's had become the, you know, the, the strongest agency in the UK and Jack was running it. Uh, they were relatively unhappy as a result, which always, and that's the problem. You know, so publicist is on top of publicist. And, you know, there is a publicist brand and you get a confusion between the two. And it's not the case at Omnicom. It's not the case at IPG. It's not, it's, I suppose that it is at Dentsu because um, mm-hmm. it's top, top. And so I think you have to have a differentiated top co or central company and to the brands. Um, unless, of course, you bring the, the things all together as one and you don't have the fallout and you do it over a period of time or with the subtlety that enables you to retain, you know, after all, we should know about this. You know, branding is our business. Brands sure. are our business. We should know that if you slam things together indiscriminately, you know, one plus one might equal one and a half or one or even 0.75. Hmm. Well, speaking of brands and slamming, I know early in your career, you did a lot of work and were very engaged both in the UK and the USA with uh, groups like the FCO, the Council for Excellent Management and Leadership. I know you work with Mayor Bloomberg here on the image of New York and the media.nyc.2020 project. Looking today, and let's put coronavirus aside as, as a moment in time, but what is the state of brand Britain post-Brexit, and how does your nation navigate its way forward as a brand? Well, we, we got two whacking great challenges in the budget last week with a, with a new chancellor, Rishi, uh, who I think gave, did extremely well. Uh, you know, I saw a presentation by him on the evening of the budget, but you know, his budget was just focused on the virus, on, on uh, COVID-19. Uh, mm-hmm. And 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 I, I think the issue really longer term is what's going to happen post Brexit. I know what I'd like to see. I don't know whether it's practical. I, I would like to see, for want of a better phrase, a Singapore on steroids. Now Singapore is five million people, and the UK is sixty three, and I think projected to go to seventy in a number mm-hmm. of years. So it's a much it's a crowded aisle. Uh, Singapore is not uncrowded, but it's on a different scale. It's, you know, it's 12 times bigger. And you see it in relation to the virus, the pandemic, you know, the, the Singaporeans have controlled it brilliantly, but they're controlling mm-hmm. it uh, on a much, much smaller scale. But having said that, uh, although it's a, a larger, it, I think the issues, when if you go look back to the newsreels surrounding Singapore's breaking away from Malaysia, uh, there are a lot of commentators saying Lee Kuan Yew can't, uh, this will be a disaster as they broke away from Malaysia. And the the fact is that Singapore has done extremely well. And I think there are a lot of lessons to learn from that. I I want to see a low tax, open, really open for business regime with regulation light uh, and investment in education and reskilling because the economy is moving so quickly and parts of the economy are being devastated by the digital transformation. It might be retail, it might be 
the northern part of the country, the middle part of the country, and this emphasis on the southeast, all those things. So hardware, software, education, reskilling. Now, this is apple pie and motherhood and costs money. And of course, if you lower tax rates, etc., well, there, are, there is a theory that, uh, that by lowering tax rates, you generate higher levels of activity, but putting that to one side, it's costly. Um, that's what I'd like to see. So that, those are the investments I'd like to see. And I think Britain has to change its pattern of trading more to the US and South America, more to uh, Middle East and Africa, more to Asia Pacific, uh, and and redress the balance in Europe because Europe uh, was 40% of our trade uh, before Brexit. Uh, I doubt whether it will be that in the future. And of course, if you look at Europe as a proportion of GDP, it's dropping. So the, the most lively parts of the world currently and in the future are like to be the Americas and are likely to be Asia Pacific and perhaps the Middle East and Africa. So we have to alter our trading patterns. So uh, I, I think Brand Britain took a, a bit of a bashing uh, last year in the, in the negotiation with the EU. We still haven't worked out the deal. Uh, the COVID-19 and the pandemic, uh, I think it's going to put immense pressure uh, on the UK government and on the EU. And I think both have an interest in making sure that the deal that's worked out, which is due to be worked out by the middle of the year, is the right deal for both parties and will take more time. I, you know, the pressure that clearly the prime minister is under here and leaders around the world are under from, from the, the, the virus is, is huge. And I think these are massive, massively important decisions uh, that the government has to make. And I think they're under too much pressure. And so I think easing it by maybe pushing out the EU negotiation, and this will help the EU too. I mean, the EU have the same problem on steroids. They have to deal with France and Germany and Italy and Spain, and, you know, and another 23, 24 countries uh, and what's happening in those countries. So huge, huge problems, unprecedented problems. And, uh, What's been happening in relation to the virus and the, the, the lockdowns and uh, the various measures, you know, today, Canada shutting its borders, except I think to U.S. residents and stopping people coming in. I mean, the lockdowns are going to cause immense disruption uh, if they haven't already. So I would just pause and reflect on those things. But coming back to the U.K., we have to tra change our policies, I think. And we have to change the way we do business and refocus. We have to get off our backsides like the Germans do in terms of exports and change the way that we do business. Well, you mentioned growth and, and let's start to wind down here. But you mentioned growth and you talked about the Americas, you talked about Asia. The companies that you acquired, I guess, starting with MediaMonks, which any pundit or we, we, we merged. We were we merged with my lord. We call them mergers because because they they bought into what we're trying to do with a mixture. You know, no earnouts, no fragmenting earnouts. What we've done is half shares, half cash to try and bring everybody together. So the so the series of mergers. Thank you for correcting me. Media monks, mighty high. <laughs> everybody looks at these companies. You've made one acquisition, which seems to have 
fit hand to glove after another. How do you identify, do you know, looking ahead to 2021, do you already know now this is who you'd like to target for additional merging into the S4 family? Well, we've gone gone to various parties. I don't want to go into who. And we've said, I've laid out those four principles, particularly the the growth principles, Mm -hmm. uh, along with some margin constraints. You know, we want to have businesses that are profitable and we want to have businesses that uh, are not likely to be disintermediated by changes in technology. So they're the part of the service layer, which I don't think the platforms, software companies, hardware companies really want to be. I don't think they're interested in being um, part of the service layer. I don't think Google and Facebook are, you know, want to displace agencies. That way, if I see another press article that says that, it drives me nuts. You know, where does WPP invest you know, its biggest part of its media portfolio or its media billings goes to Google and Facebook. Maybe, maybe Fox and Disney now are bigger than Facebook, but certainly when I was there, it was Google number one and Facebook number two, and it's gone up since then. So but you work with them, you partner with that. They're part of the digital ecosystem. Those first five companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Tencent, Alibaba, and you work, you work with them. So, you know, my feeling is that that's the way uh, we have to develop our business. Mm-hmm. And, we, you know, we say to a number of people, who are the companies that you think we should be affiliated with? Those could be the people we talk to could be part of that digital ecosystem. They could be clients. The clients have been a very good source of information on people mm-hmm. and agencies. They could be analysts. They could be journalists. They could be even you, my noble lord. There you go. Um, there you go. You know, it, it, you know, we ask people for their views, um, trade journalists, national journalists. Uh, so we've got lots of sources. And, you know, it's amazing how you can pick up free information by asking questions and listening. Yeah, no, very true. So uh, two questions to close. You wake up in the morning you bounce out of bed optimistic every day or are some days a struggle for you? Um, no, listen, I think realistic. I mean, what we're going through at the moment, I'm just looking at my iPad and I hear San Francisco residents have been told to stay indoors unless you know, for essential. And we have, you know, we have 500 people, 550, 600 people, uh, in California, in LA, in San Francisco, Mountain View. I worry about them. I worry about their families. And, you know, when, when I go to bed at night, and no doubt we'll be exchanging some information uh, with, our, with our colleagues there. I can't go there. I'd, you know, frankly, I'd love to be there, uh, you know, suffering it with them in that sense. Because I think that's coming back to your question about leadership. That's what you should do. I'm, you know, you, I think you have to lead from the front. I don't think you lead from the back. But I, you know, I, I'm not. You know, this is something you have to deal with. You know, it is what it is. We are where we are, and we have to fight our way through it. But you know, I don't want to put. You know, I don't want to be over negative about these things. But we mm-hmm. are at war. This is this is war. This yeah. is. Uh, 
wartime, you know, lockdowns, so just looking at France and Germany, uh, Canada, obviously. I mean, this is war, and it's a different type of war, uh, but this is a shocking uh, series of events or series of event and a, a shocking time. So when I wake up tomorrow morning, uh, you know, I won't be deterred, I uh, won't be depressed by it, but I, you know, I will be shocked by it. And uh, yeah. if there have been other, uh, other developments, um, you know, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. But no, I'm not, I do sort of bounce out of bed in the morning <laughs> and, I, and I am, you know, enthusiastic about things and, and it wouldn't do this at the age of 75 unless I was positive and optimistic. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a maniac. But I mean, it, it, it's a, you know, in the last few days, it's been challenging. Yeah, it sure has. It sure has been. And I think your use of the word wartime is is dead on. So again, putting the, the coronavirus, which is, you know, the you know, stories that they'll hear for generations to come, assuming we come out the other side, which is a relentless optimist, I have to believe we will. Um, looking today, you shared some of the great minds that inspired you as a young man, starting with your father. Um, looking out at the landscape today in your business life or, you know, in your non-business life, what are the great minds that you look to or, or when you need advice or counsel, who do you go to? Well, sadly, you know, I've lost my greatest source of wisdom is my dad. And then I, my second greatest source after my father died in 89 was, uh, was Phil Reese, who was the, uh, senior partner of Davis and Gilbert, you know, an advertising law mm-hmm. firm. Sure, and, sure. You know, we, had a, we had a very, very close relationship. You know, it was originally driven by our business relationship, but he became, you know, a, a quasi-dad for me, I guess. Uh, but since then, probably, to be honest, I haven't found another dad or another mum uh, or, uh, or another... Uh, partner like that of that of that nature you know somebody that and i think you have to have this i think you have to have somebody that you can talk to who does not have an agenda has your interests at heart and can give you even if they don't know anything about the advertising and marketing services industry can give you some sort of objective advice about what you should or shouldn't do and i think it's it's very difficult so i think you know for what it's worth uh i, I think having somebody like that is immensely important uh, and steadying and helpful and balancing for you. I mean, it balances you know, somebody you could, but my father was incredible. I mean, he, you know, when you think he left school at 13, I mean, he was well-versed in Shakespeare and the Talmud and had a violin scholarship and all sorts of things, but, but and he was immensely intelligent, great, great intelligent, great memory, could recite chunks, you know, not one or two lines of, you know, Julius Caesar, friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. He could go on, uh, you know, for the, the full speeches, Henry V, Richard III, as you mm. like it, Midsummer, all of the other, and from the Talmud too, quite remarkable. And I, and when you think back to that, you think about, you know, being a young Jewish boy in East End, in Mile End, uh, and, you know, you were you didn't have access to iPads or films or phones or whatever, uh, and you focused as a part of that sort of orthodox community on reading and learning. And, you know, he was very smart. And I think the one regret I have is, well, two. 
One is I never managed to work with him. We tried once and failed. And I, I, to this day, I don't know why, but we did fail, uh, you know, to get on together to do it, even though we were, you know, I used to talk to him six, seven, eight times a day before the days of mobile phones. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was that he always worked for somebody else, that he didn't do something on his own. I think that was sad too, because I think he would have been phenomenally successful. And, you know, I always regret that he never had that opportunity, gave me the opportunity, right? Uh, but he never himself had the opportunity. So, um, you know, I owe him a great debt, really. And I just think I regret that, A, we didn't do stuff together. Uh, we did, but not enough. And then secondly, that he didn't get his shot. Hmm. Well, I think we as an industry owe a great debt to you and that you are still, you know, throwing punches like Ali and, you know, in his prime at the age of 75, all of us, not just your S4 family, but our industry and the many parts of it that you touch are better off for it. So well, it's no it's no wonder you became a lord. Listen, I'm doing the best I can, and, and I would be remiss not to thank you. For Lord, what... <laughs> Lord, I'm going to call you Lord Schmoozer. Oh Lord gosh, Schmoozer. I'll tell you, you should I... be in the ad... you should be in the advertising business. You know, the irony is, I guess I've been doing this longer than I have my <laughs> sports career. I still consider anyway, myself anyway, to be a sports any, guy. If there's anybody listening who wants to indulge in a a little uh, uh, dynamic uh, conversation, or maybe non-dynamic. Uh, Martin at s4capital.com. I'll be delighted to talk to him. You are the best. Thanks so much, Sir Martin. Okay, God, God bless you. Godspeed. God thanks, 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 thanks very much. Um, thank, thank I'm not you. kneeling, as I say, my lord. I, I, I expect no, nothing less. Cheers. <laughs> okay, God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.